you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. For more than two decades, our guest today, his name is Bruce Feiler, has explored the intersection of families, of relationships, of health, and happiness. He's also one of America's most thoughtful voices on contemporary life. He's the author of, get ready for this one, seven New York Times bestsellers, including Life is in the Transitions, The Secrets of Happy Families, and this one's awesome, Consul of Dads. And then in his spare time, he gives a few talks. In three of those talks viewed at the TED seminars, they've been viewed millions and millions and millions of times. This is a popular guy, knowledgeable guy with applicable stuff for you and I to apply in our lives. Known for living the experience he writes about, Bruce shares his timeless wisdom and timely knowledge to allow each and every one of us to live with more meaning, with more passion, and with more joy. In other words, to live inspired. My friends, I love the conversation that I shared with Bruce. I know that you will too. So why don't I step out of the way and loop you in? Because today's conversation truly has something for everyone, no matter where they are, where they've been, the wave of constant change they are on, or where they want to go next. So without further ado, let me loop him in. His name is Bruce Feiler. Bruce, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. I'm I'm grateful to be invited and, and what a generous introduction. I know you've accomplished a few things in your life. For a few listeners who are tuning in right now, they somehow missed my introduction. So now you have to give your own. When you have a chance of introducing yourself, whether it's mm. to a new friend or a, an audience, how do you introduce yourself? I start with place, I have to say, right? Because I think that place is really important to me. So usually the first thing I say is something to the effect of, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, or sometimes I'll say five generations of Jews in the American South. And in a lot of ways, I think as we get into my story a little bit, it, it is that tension between uh, you know, growing up in the South. I, I love the South. I love the familyness. I love the storytellingness. I love the stickiness. But I grew up Jewish in the South, which means to a certain extent, I was always a part of it, but apart from it. Hmm. I also like being Jewish. I like the familyness and the stickiness and the storytellingness. But I grew up not just different from sort of the 
3,000 history, 3,000 year history of Jews, but also even from American Jewry, because I was a Jew in the South. And so I feel a part of it, but apart from it at the same time. And I think that my life in a lot of ways has been about kind of mining that tension. Like, so I go, I have for much of my life sort of gone into certain worlds, plunged myself in, but then left and tried to explain it to people who were not in that world, right? So I I left the South, I went uh, North uh, to college, I went to Yale in the 80s, and then I went to Japan. And I started I think I'm older than you are, but I started writing letters home on crinkly airmail paper, which a lot of our listeners may not know about. But, you know, like it was that thin paper. There were no lines. Actually, the pad of paper came with lines that you you stuck under the paper so that your writing didn't get all wiggly. And I started writing these like, you're not going to believe what happened to me today uh, kinds of letters. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everybody said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great have we met? And it turned out that my mother, my grandmother actually had Xeroxed them and passed them around. And so they went viral, in a sort of like, OG sense of the word, like a 1980 sense of the word. And I thought, well, if this is that interesting, and to me, and to all these people, like, I should write a book about it. I didn't know anyone who'd ever written a book. And it doesn't really happen this way. But I sold my first book at 24, that's now 30, almost 35 years ago. And I've never held a job since. And my life, in a lot of ways, has been about entering worlds. I did it in Japan. I did it in England. I spent a year as a circus clown. And I would enter these worlds and come back and write about it. So you said a lot there that needs a little bit of unpacking. Uh, <laughs> I felt a part of and apart from mm. the world. I'm curious, that's a pretty complicated discussion. At what age did you realize you were a part of and apart from whether it's the Jewish faith or the Southern heritage or whatever it was? When did you really start recognizing that as a person? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. But I would say as long as I can remember, you know, as we're having this conversation, I've just published a new book about work and finding meaningful work. And I grew up in a family business. And every Saturday morning, when my friends were out playing or doing, this is the South, so it would have been football, right? I had to get dressed up and go to my grandparents' house and they lived right behind us and get in a car with my grandfather. And he would drive like insanely painfully slowly <laughs> for this, but it should have been a 10 minute drive that took half an hour. And he would tell stories about growing up in Mississippi. Uh, the first car he was in, the first airplane he was in, the first time he ever had air conditioning. And I was so bored out of my mind. Of course, now I regret not listening more closely to those stories. And so I grew up in this world where kind of work was really important, but family was really important. But I also grew up with that grandfather who would drive me around town and say, like, you know, that bank won't lend to, won't lend to you and that club won't welcome you and that family won't invite you into their home. So to, to grow up, at least at that time, I was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s. And, and a place like Savannah, Georgia was very, still very isolated at the time. There's no internet, of course, there's only two TV channels. We didn't even get all the networks. So it was a very isolated and to a certain extent, backward looking, beautiful, historical, fantastical place in a lot of ways, but always a place that was unwelcoming of outsiders. So I began this, you know, this conversation by saying place was really important to me. And in that regard, I think it just came with the nature of the place. Mm. You mentioned going to Yale. What was your, your study in at that point? 
I studied history. In fact, I studied Southern history. I sort of made my own major because I, I, you know, again, a sort of a pattern in my life would be, I would leave a place and then think back on it, right? So somehow leaving the South and going to the Northeast, I then, you know, I studied American history and particularly Southern history because I wanted to learn more about that place, right? And then it was my junior year in college, I went to Japan and they started writing those letters. And that was like, oh, I want to learn about myself as an American. So like this, this pr process uh, has defined my life in a lot of ways. For a long time, I said I only had two skills and now I've added a third. But the, the two skills that I had in some ways were number one, I'm an experientialist. Right? I like going, immersing, learning by doing, which turned out to be helpful because I grew up in the age of discount airfare when international travel becomes cheap and affordable at that time in a way that it hadn't been right for most of human history. Um, and I'm also an explainaholic. That's actually a term that Isaac Asimov used. So I would go, I would experience, and then I would leave and explain. Like, And it's those two things. And I, I said that recently... And of course, we'll get to this as we go through the story. Uh, we were chatting before we came on the air about this. I now think of myself as a life story and too, like someone who, like you, has had a complex, at times painful, yeah. difficult life story. And as a result, and sort of making peace with that in my own life, has made me realize that talking about life stories is an incredibly powerful way to connect with other people. Let's talk about a few of those life stories. And with most of my guests, sometimes I find myself like digging to find enough information to have a conversation for an hour that I think is truly exceptional for our audience. You, my friend, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> when you have dozens of books and hundreds of articles and TED Talks and everything else, it's like, gosh, where do I focus, man? What's the focus? So let, let's break it down to just a few. You spent a little bit of time in the Middle East. And then there was a little book project and maybe even a PBS special that grew out of that. Would you unpack even what led to that project? So as I said, in my 20s, I was experiencing things and explaining them, right? So I wrote a book. My first book was called Learning to Bow about teaching junior high school in Japan. I then got a master's degree at Cambridge and wrote a book about inside the British aristocracy. I spent a year uh, as a circus clown in the Clyde Beatty Cold Brothers Circus kind of fulfilling this childhood. I learned to juggle when I was a teenager and used to put myself through high school. I used to joke doing mime at birthday parties for $30, 30 bucks a birthday party. I was in Nashville writing a book about country music, living across the street from three churches. And I realized, you know, okay, I'm almost 30. I'm a professional writer now. I should be more conversant with the Bible. I hadn't really read it since I was a kid, which meant I hadn't really read it. So I take my bar mitzvah Bible, quite literally, I stick it by my bed, and it gathers dust there for two years, until I go to visit a friend who is living there. And on my first day, I go to this sort of promenade that many people go, if anybody listening to us has been to Israel, they, many people go on their first day. And I, you look south, this guide and says, there's this controversial neighborhood. And then I look north to that golden dome that's at the heart of the old city. And my friend says, that's the, the spot where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I'm like, I mean, these are real places that you can touch and visit and feel it kind of maybe had never occurred to me yeah. that. And so here we go, John, what is the first thing I said? I'm a place person. So I thought, well, here's an idea. What if I go to the places 
in the story and read the stories along the way, this will allow me to kind of reconnect to my roots and understand the stories in this history. Nobody thought this was a good idea. Like these places are dangerous. They're in war zones. By the way, there's nothing to see when you get there. You know, if, if you take the book of Genesis, there's no buildings there. There's not even any furniture there. Like they're wandering in the desert. Like, what are you going to do? But I have a little bit of a stubborn streak. And I sort of had this idea. And I met this archaeologist named Avner Gorin. And the two of us made this journey. Three continents, five countries, four war zones. I climbed Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark. I crossed the Red Sea. I tasted manna. And I wrote a book called Walking the Bible that became a thing. I mean, it spent a year and a half on the bestseller list. I went back, as you said, and made one. And then it became uh, multiple PBS series. I ended up writing five books in this series. A, a lot of it happened because this was, Walking the Bible was published in March of 2001. Six months later was 9-11. And so suddenly <laughs> the Middle East and the West and the United States in particular that had always been sort yeah. of connected historically we're now involved in this can we get along is there going to be a religious war i wrote a book called abraham uh that appeared on the cover of time magazine back when that mattered and then that became a thing and suddenly i'm involved in this interfaith conversations and so suddenly um this little way of living my life of traveling and entering and coming back and explaining it turned out to be something that was sort of on the moment and and to a certain extent what people we're craving at that period in our history. Well, it's going to lead to a quote from another book you wrote that blew, blew me away. One of the quotes, I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but be a traveler, not a tourist. Yes. Well, and I think that really gets us to the heart of this conversation. I think that the connection that I can already feel that you and I have, which is the way I now think about the life that we've been talking about here in the context of the conversation we're about to have is as a kind of typical linear fantasy that we all want. Like I figured out what I wanted to do early in my life. I did it for no money for a long time. Then suddenly I had outsized success. Uh, I got married. I had children. Like this is, the you know, in, in entrepreneurship, my wife is in entrepreneurship. They talk about the hockey stick, right? So you've got the blade of the hockey stick and then you want to be the handle. You want your company to... <laughs> that was my life in a lot of ways until my 40s when it entirely blew up. And the first sort of detonation of that was I was diagnosed at 43 as the parent of, at the time, three-year-old identical twin daughters. I was diagnosed with a rare aggressive bone cancer in my left femur. So suddenly I literally was the walking guy. That was sort of what I was known as. And I was looking at the, the, the genuine possibility that I might never walk again and that I might not even survive more than a couple of years. And so you were joking earlier that, you know, was my head going to fit into the car that I'm about to get into? And I'm going to drive in that car to Cape Cod uh, to stay with my in-laws, where I'm looking at the date here in the lower right-hand corner as we have this conversation. 15 years ago this month, wow. I was diagnosed with cancer and I woke up on day three. I say wake up, but if anyone's ever been diagnosed with cancer. You don't sleep for the first three days. But I woke up in air quotes. And I had this idea, you know, that I had lived a full life at this point, like no one was ever going to say I didn't live the hell out of my life. And that my wife would go through pain, but she's a very upbeat person, she would find joy and happiness in some way, but that my children would lack for my voice. And I wanted a way to give those children my voice. And so I had this idea, fully formed on day three, that I would ask a group of men 
to be present, basically, to be my voice for my children. And the second I had the idea, I also knew the name. I was like, I would call it the Council of Dads. So, uh, Bruce, I'm stopping you now, man. <laughs> I can't think about this without crying. And I barely know you, and I don't know your two girls all that well, other than through the book. And your, your wife sounds lovely, but I don't know her either. And hearing this makes me sad and emotional and mm. like goosebumpy. You don't know if you're going to be there. You're actually pretty sure you won't be there for yes. three-year-old twins who are your world. They're beautiful, and they're fun, and they're wild about you. They have hilarious comments for you. So you reach out to six dads, six men, six leaders who you respect, and, and yet you're able to share this like it's a, hey, please pass me the coffee. Like, so matter of fact, just even talk about that. How do you share such life and death emotional content without showing even more emotion? Well, those children graduated from high school two days ago. Mm. And so I've been, I've been going through old photos because I wanted to post on my social channels. So there's this picture of the two of them at five on their first day of kindergarten now and so what i was looking and they're all they're excited to go to school they're in these hysterically bright colors and glittery red and purple shoes because when you have, when you have twins and these girls are very identical in a lot of ways like you we kind of color-coded them now they're sort of horrified that we kind of color-coded them uh but we color coded them. And I was looking at this and I was thinking, yeah, even this, even at five, like that, and that was two years later than when I got diagnosed. And like, I might not have even have lived to five, but what's my answer to this question? Obviously, part of it is it's just part of my life at this point. But part of it is I like going to the dark places. I like talking about pain. It's incredibly important to me. And to a certain extent, I like normalizing real conversations. I mean, one of the things that I thought when I was going through this, so I then went through a brutal year of chemo, I had a surgery, where they took out my left femur, they replaced it with titanium, they took um, my fibula from my calf, and relocated it to my thigh, where it now lives, and took out half my quadricep, because the cancer had gone through the bone um, into the muscle. That was a, a surgery so rare, only two people before me had ever survived it. Um, and I didn't really like chit chat before. I mean, all of us have to do chit chat from time to time, but I feel that that experience gave me permission to have real conversations. Like I, there's a story in Abraham, my book we were talking about before. I, I actually interviewed a Catholic priest who grew up across the street from me in a large Catholic family. He was the oldest of like what became 10 or 11 and he became a Catholic priest. And he said something to me, which I has always stuck with me, John, which is he said that when you wear the collar, it gives you access and intimacy and permission to go into the the realest and most vulnerable uh, places in people's lives. You're there for the deaths. You're there for the births. You're there for the marriages. You're there for the children's christening or, or whatever it might be. I love that. I feel that cancer is a passport to intimacy, and it has allowed me to go to these real places. And I can sometimes get emotional, but in, to a certain extent, I feel that it's not that it's my job, but it's the privilege of my life is I get to talk to people about the worst things that ever happened to them, and then try to break them down into kind of useful, practical patterns and things that can help other people navigate their difficult times. This is the essence of what we have in common, because that cancer kicked off a series 
of discombobulating events. First, there was the cancer. Then I had financial troubles. Then my father, who has Parkinson's at the time, gets very depressed and tries to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. So in a basically in a back-to-back-to-back period of a very short, you know, a small number of years, I am a professional storyteller. I have now at this point written books about ancient storytelling that have touched millions of people around the world and made television shows that have touched tens of and I can't tell my story because I'm ashamed because I don't know how because I don't have the language. Uh, and that's what prompts me into what is sort of become the the work of the recent vintage of my life is just a simple desire. I call my wife at one point in the middle of this whole process. And I was like, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. Everybody's discompopulated. Everybody has an experience like I, like I just had when their life gets overturned. And the way people talk about it, John, is like the life I expected to have is not the life that I'm having. Like I'm living life out of order. That's what I kept hearing over and over again. I'm living life out of order. Because I'm a grump and because I don't like being told what to do and because I hate these expectations and the should game that we are that are forced upon us, I was like, what is that about? What is this? I'm living life out of order. And of course, it turns out that the problem is not you. It's the idea that there is an order to life. That's the problem that the expectation we have, and we can unpack this a bit, but we have nonlinear lives, but we have linear expectations. Mm. And it's the tension between those two that is the source of, of much of the discontent, I think, in contemporary life. So I, I do want to unpack that. And I, before that, I want to talk just a bit more about the Council of Dads. Because the idea should not require a diagnosis of cancer to nominate mm, yes. six people that you love to say, hey, guys, should a satellite fall from the heavens and hit my office while I'm working here on this podcast, you got my kids, right? Yeah. So walk me through the process of identifying the six and how did they receive not only the fact that their buddy had cancer, might die, but was now entrusting his most precious gift into their lives? Well, first of all, we have to deal with my wife who she's very upbeat, right? Her name is Linda. She grew up in Boston. She started and runs an organization called Endeavor that supports high-impact entrepreneurs in 50 countries around the world. Like she's a rock star in, in her space of development, but she's a very upbeat person. So my original instinct was I can't tell her, right? Because this would be a downer and she'd be very depressed. Then I decide I have to tell her. So two days later, I tell her and she loves the idea but she hates the men that I want to choose for it, right? So she's like, well, I, I like that person, but I would never ask him for advice. So, right, so it quickly turns out that this was a very efficient way to figure out what my wife really thought of my friends, right? So then we needed some rules here, right? So it was like, okay, first of all, only men. Like I have a lot of, like a lot of men have a lot of close female relationships, but we figured we're trying to fit the dad spot, like not family, because we figured they would be there. So then it was sort of like men from different parts of my life, we didn't want a bunch of people from college, right, or a bunch of people from childhood, we wanted different people. And then as it turned out, I sort of then one by one decided to do this, I didn't like to send him an email, right, there was no zoom at the time. But I decided to do this in person. So Linda was joking that I was like friend marrying them. Like I would go the first person, my friend Jeff, who like taught me how to travel. He led a tour group. My grandmother gave me one of these it's travel summer abroad programs as a graduation present from high school. 
and this guy, Jeff. And so we went to Vermont. We drove up there. We sat in an apple orchard. I had written this letter, which now is in the beginning of the book, Council of Dads, and actually then became um, a motif in the beginning of what turned out to be the NBC series about the Council of Dads. And I read this letter, and it was sort of you know, this, this, and would you be this voice for my children? And I get to the end of the letter, and, and he's crying. I'm crying. You'll be happy to know. We were all crying. There, um, there right. we go. Um, and he says, yes. And I was like, yes? He's like, yeah, you asked me a question. And I'm like, oh, right. It didn't really occur to me that you were going to say no. Like, I'm, you know, that, that was not really, that was not really in the conception. And then I said something that turned out to be sort of key in my life in a lot of ways, because then I said, um, if you could give my, my daughters one piece of advice, what would it be? And his was, because we used to travel, to, we traveled together. First time I went abroad was with him. And we the first country we were in was in the, in the Netherlands. And we were sitting behind a castle that was a youth hostel. And there were some cows. And he was like, you want to go cow tipping? I was like, like, I grew up in Georgia, but what the hell's cow tipping? He's like, well, cows sleep standing up. And like, you know, we're going to climb the fence and we're going to go approach the cows and we're going to push the cow over and they're going to go thud and we're going to laugh like whatever, punks. So his line was approach the cow, which by the way, turns out, Cows don't sleep standing up. And you know, cow tipping is not a thing. It's just a myth. And so we never actually tipped the cows. But it was in a way of like, live your life, like take the trip, like plunge into the mud puddle and tip the cow, right? And so that began this process, which ultimately led to the book about this experience called The Council of Dads. And it's funny that you're bringing up these stories, um, or I'm bringing up these stories, or you're asking about Council of Dads, because my children graduated, uh, as I said, this week from high school. And I went back, as I said, and I got the picture of them the first day of kindergarten with the last day with their dresses that they wore. And I had these two pictures side by side. And I wrote actually the favorite thing in whatever, 15 books and God knows, as you say, how many articles. And now I write a newsletter about all these things called the nonlinear life. My favorite thing I ever wrote, which was um, the end of that year, I was on crutches for a year. And when you're on crutches, you go slowly. Like... Mm. When you're not, you get someplace quickly, but you're alone. But when you are on crutches, you gather all these people because you notice people and you notice other people who are walking slowly and who are somehow off the, you know, the rapid, I'm getting exactly where I'm going track. And so I wrote this line for my children. That is the favorite thing I ever wrote, which is, it's based on the fact that in early 19th century Paris, men of leisure who were called flaneurs to show off the fact that they were men of leisures used to take turtles for a walk on a leash to signal to everybody around them that they had no place better to be. So I wrote this line for my children, um, take a walk with a turtle and behold the world in pause. And it, I can honestly say it's this thing, their t-shirts, it like goes around the internet. It's the only thing I've ever went that, that like those letters from Japan, like went viral in the modern sense of the word. Uh, recently, someone sent me a picture recently, it was on a cafe wall in Athens, Greece. So what that experience was, John, was I now think of it in some ways as an antidote to contemporary life, right? Now we're 15 years later, where we talk about loneliness, right? And we talk about isolation and this kind of the downside of contemporary life that we're all sitting inside looking at our devices and we're not connecting with people. That is an antidote to that because we have our family, particularly men these days, and we have our work, but friendship is devalued and friends get pushed aside. And what this turned out to be, though I didn't know it at the time, it was all sort of instinctual, 
was an invitation to invite my friends into the thing that's most important to me as my family. And it is that bridge that shouldn't, as you say, have to wait for a diagnosis. And the most gratifying thing that happens is people write me all the time that they have a council of dads, a council of moms, um, for lots of different reasons, but because it, it really turns out to solve a problem that that many of us have. So good. One of my questions to you, and I, I wrote down 311. So hopefully, we, uh, <laughs> you know, six hours in, we should get to this right. halfway through it. It's going to be very, very exciting. One of them was going to be, have you disbanded the, the console? So I'll tell you a story. I didn't ban it or disband. I banded it, obviously. And it's met a couple of times, but it doesn't meet regularly. But I'll tell you a story that I think is the best way to answer this question. A few years ago, one of the men in the council, his child was having, it was actually a bar mitzvah in Los Angeles. And I live in Brooklyn. And he was in the hospital, actually, the week of this event. And his wife called me. And she said, I just want you to know that your friend is in the hospital. He's not going to be there. You might not want to come because you're flying across the country. And I remember saying to Linda, I was like, oh, so I got this call from his wife. And I said, what do I do? And she's like, this is a council of dads moment. Yeah. You, it's more important for you to go now uh, than just because your friend would have been there and you would have gotten to see him. In fact, I, my friend didn't welcome me to the hospital because he was uncomfortable with that. And it was a particular delicate moment. He's fine now. Um, but I went and it was like, so Council of Dads is now a shorthand for describing a kind of relationship between a friend and a child that's deeper than just, uh, oh, yeah, you're my dad's friend. Oh, that's so good. It's so needed. It's so missing. I, I love it. Thank you for sharing all that. You mentioned that during that season in your life, you had not only the cancer diagnosis and some profound challenges with that, mm -hmm. but that it kept expanding. And this snowball of difficulty and transition kept growing on you. And one was a phone call that you received from your mom. Your, your mother calls and says, it's your dad. And, and so talk about that phone call and what it represented. I can open up the book that came out of this called Life is in the Transitions. It's so funny because I used to have this saying that friends, that phone calls don't change your life. And, the, and the, the source of that saying was when I published my first book, I got a call from an editor. I was actually in New Haven staying with some family um, going on a kind of self-financed book tour. And this editor from the New York Times called and asked me if I would write an op-ed in the New York Times. And I was like, my life is done. Like profession, like I just got a call from the New York Times and they tracked me down and I'm like a 25-year-old, six-year-old, I can't remember, kid. And like, I've just made it. And over the next six months, I wrote six drafts of six different op-eds for the New York Times and they were all rejected. And as a result of this, I coined this saying, because as if you learn nothing about me, I will coin a saying from time to time, I, which is that phone calls don't change your life. And what's amazing about this is that this morning, that editor is now in the same position at the, at the Washington Post. And I just sent him a pitch for an article about my latest book, The Search. Anyway, so that's just an amazing convergence. So here's the opening line. I used to believe that phone calls don't change your life. Um, and I've never told the origin of that story before right now, until one day, I got a phone call that did. It was from my mother, your father is trying to kill himself. So 40 years ago, as we taped this conversation, I graduated from high school in Savannah, Georgia. And a month before my grandfather, 
got Parkinson's, got very depressed and took a gun and shot himself. And I kind of remember thinking at the time that he, you know, must have been out of control. And also a little bit, I think as a teenager would have like, wait a minute, I'm about to graduate from high school. And like, this is, among other things, not considerate of those around you. I've since learned a lot more that when people do these things, they're obviously not in control of themselves in a lot of ways. And my father said he would never do it because he saw the pain and destruction that happened. And yet here he also got Parkinson's and yet he also could not control himself. And in this case, it happened, as I mentioned earlier, it happened six times in the next 12 weeks. And we tried everything. As you might imagine, we tried medical care, we tried drugs, we ultimately even tried the kind of the modern shock therapy, which actually turned to be somewhat helpful. My father did not like it, but my mother insisted, and it actually was in some ways helpful. But six months before that happened, I had published this book called The Secrets of Happy Families. And it was based on kind of new techniques that families can use because the old techniques no longer worked. And I was writing a column at the New York Times at the time. And I promised my editor I would give her the best idea that I had encountered. And the best idea was from a group of researchers at Emory, Marshall Duke and Robin Fivish, who studied children in the summer of 2001 and the children who knew more about their family history were better able to navigate the ups and downs in their lives. They created a test, which I, in the New York Times, I didn't even know this, deemed the do you know test. Do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know an aunt or an uncle who had an illness that they overcame? Do you know what happened when your parents were born? And the children who understood that their families had kind of natural oscillations to their lives were better able to navigate these. It turned out to be the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. And I wrote about this in The Secrets of Happy Families. I put it in the New York Times in a story called The Stories That Bind Us that went crazy viral. And six months later, my dad starts on this suicide spree. And it was this idea of family history that leads me to say, oh, what if I do a family history storytelling project with my dad? So I sit down and I start sending him an email every Monday morning like, tell me about the toys you played with as a child. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Like, how did you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you meet mom? And this was a man who never wrote anything longer than a memo in his life. But he starts answering these things first as a paragraph and then as a page and then as two or three or four pages. And this goes on year after year for eight years until in weeks before what became the end of his life from then natural causes at almost 87. He completes a 65,000-word memoir. Those of you who don't read it, that's like an average, that's like a 250-page you know, novel. Full book. One question, one week at a time. And I will just tell you, because I know you have some personal way of relating to this, and I'd love to know, I hope your experience has not gotten as bad as that is. But it brought him back to life. I, we all believe that with every fiber of our being. It turns out there's a whole field called narrative gerontology about the power of storytelling. And that's ultimately what leads to the work I'm doing now of collecting and analyzing life stories. But it saved my father's life. Full stop. Thank you. Thank you for giving him purpose and for letting his experiences in the past guide him forward into the future. It, it did save his life. 
And uh, you asked how my dad's doing, so I'll answer you before I, I, I provide the next question. But my, my dad's awesome. He's not well physically. He's had Parkinson's for more than three decades. He wow. struggles with speech and swallowing, and he can no longer stand and ambulate. But he has joy in his life. And this is something I, most of our listeners don't even know. But when he first got Parkinson's, he lost his job. Uh, they no longer found value in a man who helped build a business. So welcome to corporate America to some degree. Hmm. They show him the exit. My dad comes home. He reflects on his life, much like your dad. And unlike your father, though, rather than saying, and there's no value here, he said, there's so much value here. I've got to write it down. So he writes the story of his son getting burned. And uh, it's a story we as a family. So he, so he, so he's the first. He's the first one. And and he writes it from your point of view or from his point of view as a parent watching you. You gave me A or B and I'm going to go with C. He actually wrote it in first person as mom. He, he thought it would be most meaningful coming from, from his wife. So um, really, dad wrote the what book. What is that about? Mom's voice. It's called Overwhelming Odds. They printed 100 copies. They've sold almost 100,000 cents. One of the copies was sold to the guy interviewing you today. So for $10.40, I got to read about what happened to me as a kid. And dude, it changed my life. I never really identified the power of history in a positive way. I'd always seen the negative impact, the shadow effect. So your father writes this story through the eyes of your mother. Boy, that's interesting in and of itself. You know, that's so interesting. Did he not give permission? Did he not feel that a man of that age could tell the story? Did he feel like it was her story? But then why is he putting his words in her mouth? Is that speaking over her? Fascinating. So he tells your story through her mouth and you read it and it gives you voice. Which led to two things. One is voice of embracing scars and brokenness Mm -hmm. as being used for good. That's big in life. The second thing that happened is a little girl scout read that book and called me one day when, when I'm working construction, that was my job. And she asked me to speak at her school. And so the reason why I speak today is because my dad wrote a book. And the reason he wrote that book is because Parkinson's disease came knocking. So I I believe in the power of word. I know you do as well. And my dad used that disease, that diagnosis for good decades ago when he wrote the book. And he still does now, even though he's mostly nonverbal. He's a remarkable example of saying yes to all of life. First of all, everything about this story is fascinating to me because it's so interesting because there's... Here's what I hear as somebody who's now collected and analyzed hundreds of life stories, 1,500 hours of interviews, 10,000 pages of transcripts. I have now written two books on the power of personal storytelling. The first is Life is in the Transitions, and the new one is the search about the search for meaning for work. Uh, what I hear in this story is are the barriers that we feel in telling our story. Right. So your father, like, so you have the story, the experience has to, you have the experience, like just take cancer. Like my mother had cancer. My mother-in-law had cancer. They both fall into the, don't ever mention it again. (laughs) Like I'm going on with my life and I'm going to pretend it didn't happen to me. Right. There's another camp, right. Which is the pink ribbon march, you know, join the support group, like write a memoir, write a memoir, give a TED talk, right? You know, turn it into a TV series, right? Spielberg wants to make a movie, all this kind of stuff. So there's these different camps, but, but so some people have a block to storytelling. So you don't think initially to tell the story. He thinks to tell the story, but there obviously is some sort of a hurdle. So then he decides to tell the story through someone else's voice. Then you read that story 
and you can relate to it, but then it takes, but you still have a block to telling that story. And then it takes the Girl Scout to come to you to tell you to tell your story. So there's a lot of hurdles. So what I hear is anybody out there listening to us who has a story, I hear a challenge of giving yourself permission to tell the story. Fully. And you and I both probably bump into people who want to tell their story in order to sell books. And I always implore them, know your story in order to live your life more fully. And if book sales come out of that, great. And if TED Talks come out of that, great. But the goal never should be to self-promote, I don't think, maybe you disagree with me, or to be on the front of the New York Times. It's ultimately to be used for good. And then if if you do that well enough, long enough, it will end up where it needs to go. But that uh, that should not be the focus. There's only one reason to write a book, because you can't not write a book. Every other reason is the wrong reason. If you're doing it for love or money or sex or fame, you might get those, but odds out you're going to have a book that's spine out on your mother's bookshelf. And so you have to do it because you can't not do it. And by the way, that will cut out a lot of people. As for the storytelling thing, I think that here's what I've learned. So just to reset the stage here for a second and take a half a step back. So what happened was when I had these, my life blew up and then I didn't tell my story and then I find out that everyone's got a story, I created something which I now call the Life Story Project. And over the last six years, I have traveled across the country collecting and analyzing 400 life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states, all economic backgrounds, looking for patterns that could help other people navigate times of change and update their story. So the first book I wrote about this is called Life is in the Transitions. And it's about how we navigate our nonlinear lives, which are characterized by these events I call life quakes, right? These huge, massive bursts of change, and they lead to life transitions. And we go through three to five life quakes in the course of our lives. Their average length is five years. So if you do the math, three to five, four, five, six years, that's 25 years of our adult lives, we are in a life transition. And yet there hadn't been a major book on life transitions for 40 years, we weren't really talking about life that way. And essentially until the pandemic, and this book comes out in the middle of the pandemic, when the entire planet is in a life transition. And so kind of yet again, has been blessed to happen to me several times in my life, I had the story that people were looking for at the time. And the essence of that story is that we are wired to tell stories. Mm. If, if people just stop and listen, you have a story going on in the back of your head. This is who I am. And this is where I grew up. And this is wh who I've been and how I've changed. We have this story. And that story isn't part of you. That story is you in a fundamental way. Yes. Like life is the story that you tell yourself. And this was at the fringe of psychology in the 1980s. But because of a whole series of things, creative academia, academics, and then neuroscience that we can now peer inside the brain, we now know that our life is wired to tell stories. If I tell you a story, like I got up this morning and it was snowing overnight, and I went downstairs and I put on my jacket and I opened the door, and what did I see? I'm as I'm telling that story, your brain is already telling you, is finishing that story. Yeah. So you know exactly where, where that story is going to go. So now I'm going to tell the story. It snowed and snowed and snowed last night. And I went downstairs and I put up my jacket and I opened my door. And what did I see? A giant pile of donuts. So suddenly you're confused and you're perking up. You think I'm going to say a blanket of snow or a snowman or something like that. Now I got a giant pile of donuts. 
What that is, that's the plot twist in Hollywood terms. But in your life, it's a burn incident. In my life, it's cancer and suicide of my father. It's a diagnosis. It's a pandemic. It's a natural disaster. Our life is full of piles of donuts. Yes. And then the question is, the human psychological question is, how do you then incorporate the piles of donuts into your life story when you don't want the pile of donuts in your life story? That's sure. the essence of it. It's updating your life narrative when something happens in it that you didn't expect that is out of order, as I said before. And listen, we're, we're going to run out of time, and I know you need to get out of the house with your girls in tow. So I want to respect that. I do want you to, though, to give our friends who are listening to us still an opportunity to understand how do you embrace that box of donuts? How do you bring that into the house and open it up and take a bite? What are some ideas that when life happens, and it will, it will happen repeatedly, things you don't expect to embrace that and to do the best you can with it going forward? So thing number one is to understand you're not alone. You have nonlinear lives. We all, the idea of a linear life is a myth that was invented 100 plus years ago in the industrial birth of the industrial age because factories happen to have conveyor belts and assembly lines, right? The idea of, of my more, more recent work, the idea of the big idea in the search is that a lot of people are unhappy with what they do. Okay, My work right now is a lot of people are unhappy with what they do. 70% of Americans are unhappy with what they do. Three quarters of Americans plan to new, look for new work this year. 50 million Americans quit a job in the last year alone. That's a third of the workforce. Mm. You add this together, that means 100 million people will sit down with someone that they love tonight, tomorrow, this summer, this year, and say, honey, I'm not happy with what I'm doing, and I want to do something that, I, that makes me happy. Okay, the problem is not you, it's the idea of the career, the career is the linear model that was invented 100 years ago when people came from farms to cities. And the idea was that once at 21, if you're a man, you're going to pick one occupation, and you're going to do it for 50 years, like few ideas in history have squandered more human potential. Because it stigmatizes spending time with family, leaving one job to start becoming a public speaker, okay? Spending, you go going to chemo appointments with your mother, joining public service. We have nonlinear lives. So the first thing, so what have I learned? One thing is to normalize the nonlinear life. That's step number one. And when you go through a nonlinear life, realize you don't have to board what I call the should train. You should do this, John. You should do that, Mary, right? You should do this. You should have to take this job. You should feel this way. No. There is no one way to tell your life story anymore. And there is not, there is not only one way to tell your work story anymore. Okay? So number two is to stop making you feel you're out of order. Okay? And then third is to give yourself permission to be the hero of your own story and make whatever decisions that you want in the search, which is my new book, as we just two weeks old, as we take this conversation, it literally gives you a series of questions to ask when you are in what I call a work quake to decide what is the meaningful work that you want, not what your parents want, not what society wants, what you want. It's a series of questions. What did you learn? 20, I call it 21 questions to find work you love. So if anybody is going through a work quake or you know someone, and by the way, that's 100 million Americans, 100 million of us, 
This will walk you through the steps to determine what it is that you want to do. And mm-hmm. the the big answer goes back to literally the first thing you said. What did you say? The I'm first thing you said was, myself. I have to do all this work to dig into someone's life story. Here's the big answer. We have been telling a story in this country about climbing. Up by your bootstraps, rags to riches, bigger office, higher floor, greater salary, more benefits. I'm here to tell you if I've learned one thing is that the people who are happiest and most fulfilled in what they do, who have the greatest meaning in their life, they don't climb, they dig. Mm. They do what I call a meaning audit. They go personal archaeology, digging through their lives, saying, who am I? What is the story I have been trying to tell my entire life? And what can I do right now to get myself closer to telling the story that I want to tell? Bruce Fowler, we are bumping up against the end of our time together. We have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're rapid fire questions called the Live Inspired Seven. Before we get into them, though, I have a little Italian to practice on you, and I'm hoping you can translate and then tell me why you've used this frequently in your work. Yes. Lupus and fabula. I love it. I knew that. I knew you were going to say that because um, it's your life, John. It really is. Now I'm going to cry. Let me you. just correct you. It is our lives. That's and true. that's why I really think it's important people understand the power of it in their life. Lupus and fabula is, is it really is a great way to encapsulate this, right? So the fabula in our life is our life when it's fabulous. It's the fable version when everything is going right. The lupus is the wolf that shows up and mucks up the garden party, the fable, the fantasy of our life. So lupus and fabula is, uh, you know, comes from Latin and it's an Italian expression meaning the wolf and the fairy tale. And Italians use it to mean speak of the devil, right? (laughs) Just when everything is going right, along comes a wolf, an ogre, a downsizing, a diagnosis, a natural disaster, a tornado, a pandemic, and mucks it up. Mm. And I think our instinct is we want to banish the wolf. Right? If only we could just banish the wolf. If only we could just didn't get the cancer or weren't burned or didn't lose our legs in an accident or didn't have the pandemic or didn't have that suicide attempt or didn't have that bankruptcy or didn't have that lawsuit or didn't have that divorce. We want to banish the wolf. But if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero because it's the hero's job to get around the wolf, through the woods, over the wall, under the boulder. And that's what makes the hero. If you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And we need to be the hero of our own life stories. Bruce, you should consider a career in storytelling. I think you would do all right in it. So my friend, uh, as we make sure- we there's no such it. thing as the career. So that's, that's <laughs> chapter one of my new book is you, you, line number one is you have a career. So fine, I'll do it, but let's just don't call it a career. How about that? <laughs> uh, continue the, the worthy effort, my friend. So uh, question mm-hmm. number one, what has been, for a man who's written more books than some people have read, what's been the best book you've ever read? So the most influential book in your life is- Oh, those are different questions. The best yeah. book and the most influential think, think, book. Influential. I'll say the most influential book um, I've ever read was The Water is Wide, which is a 
un, largely unread memoir, the first book, um, actually the second book, by Pat Conroy that became the movie Conrack about teaching on a, a small island called Defusky, quite near the island of Tybee Island where I grew up and near Beaufort where Pat grew up. And Pat became my role model. There's a whole, the, the search, as you know, is dedicated to Pat. And he's the one that gave me permission to become a storyteller. The water is wide. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy on that orange when growing up in Savannah that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Fearlessness. Wow. If your home caught fire and all living things and people are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, one thing, one possession that matters to you, what do you save? It's funny that you asked this question because my children have just been going through the college application death march, as I call it. And that question was one of the questions in one of the colleges that I applied to when I was whatever, an 18-year-old in Savannah, Georgia. And at the time, I remember saying photographs, right? Because that was the thing that was most precious. And of course, now so many of those are, are digitized. If I could grab one thing... I'm going to be thinking about this for the next five hours on this drive. If I could grab, because I like place and I like things um, and things embody, embody memories, memories for me and nothing is coming to mind. I'm looking around my. Um, uh, I'm going to share with you two of my guests, what they grabbed and maybe that will spark. Something. Yeah. I had a guy named Charlie Plum who, uh, was on a 74th mission flying off the Kitty Hawk, shot down in Vietnam, spent eight years then in internment, abused and everything else. And uh, he came home with some scars. He also came home with a, a little metal cup. And what he would grab is that cup. And it reminds him how to survive the tough times. It's a powerful story. So that's, that's one thing that came out of a burning house. Hmm. And I'm also, I'm looking up at a picture right behind the camera of Brene Brown. What she grabbed was a wooden cross. So I'm like, wooden cross, why'd you grab that, Brene? And, and um, she grabbed that because she had just had two babies. The babies were no longer in their cribs. They were trying to figure out what to do with the, the old wooden cribs. So they turned that wood into a cross to remind mm, them of well their faith, but also of their little ones. Uh, and so th those are two types of examples from our guests in the past. Yeah, it's funny because I did a podcast, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago uh, called Person, Place, or Thing. And I was asked for one thing that I would take and I was talking about, and I said that I would take... Um, um, I would take a left leg. I don't have a copy of my femur because I think it got thrown away with the cancer in it. Um, but I think that what I would grab is I have on my our mantle downstairs, I collect different things, but one of the things I've collected is menorahs. And I have a menorah that was saved from the Holocaust. That's a small, kind of dark, somewhat tarnished um, menorah that belonged to some German family that I don't know that was killed in the Holocaust. And in terms of the things that would embody my love of travel, my love of meaning, my love of pain, my love of story. And yes, my love of the part of me that is a part of and apart from, I think I would take that menorah. Mm, that's so good. Thank you. And thank you for having that and, and honoring that. If you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh, next to? Oh my God, I totally didn't expect that. I'll tell you the answer that came to mind, which may not um, be the, the, the question that you were asking, but there's a bench in the plot, my family's plot at Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia, a stone bench that we put there. 
where I could look out at my father and my grandfather and some other members of my family. And that's where I thought I would sit. So I'll put myself there. And if you're asking me who I would sit with, that's easy. Actually, Moses, what the heck happened on top of Mount Sinai? I really want to know. <laughs> and how did you feel about the fact that you never made it to the promised land? So Moses. That's a tough final 40 years. What's the best advice Moses, grandpa, dad, or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Oh, that's also easy. At the end of that year of cancer, I went to see my doctor, John Healy. By the way, Healy, great name for a doctor. And he was like trying to keep the distance between doctor and patient, but I was writing this book and he agreed. And I said to him, remember I said to the first person I put in the Council of Dads, my friend Jeff, I asked him what piece of advice he would give to my children. His was approach the cow. That is now engraved with the other Council of Dad members on a, uh, oh, by the way, that's a better answer, actually, than my, um, my wife gave me, and now I'm going to cry. Uh, she carved all those sayings into a table which is the, our kitchen table and where we have family meetings weekly with my daughters, which is the backbone of Council of Dads. I might just grab that table because it would burn. It's underneath the menorah. But I went to see Dr. Healy and I said, if, my, if I died and my children came to you for advice, what would you tell them? And he told me the smartest thing I ever heard. And that's, and this is the easiest question you've asked me in almost an hour. He said, what I would tell your children is everybody dies, but not everybody lives. And your father would want you to live. So go live your life. Oh, everybody dies. For not everybody lives. To hear, yes. Or for you oh, to hear. Or for our that's listeners. It. Today. That's it. Everybody dies. Not everybody lives. I want you to live. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? What advice would I give myself at age 20? I did 20 okay. I went to the other side of the world. I did something risky. I wrote those letters and it changed my life. And so I would say, not that different from what I say now. One of my mottos is take the trip. If you got the time and the money and the health, take the trip. My friend, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence, not 15 books, one sentence. How would you like yours to read? This bridge will take you only halfway there. I mean, what that means to you. It's a line from a Shel Silverstein poem called The Bridge that is the last page of Where the Sidewalk Ends. It's a, a line that means a lot to me, meant a lot to me. I, I used it in a speech that I gave at my own high school graduation. And one of my daughters came to me and as she was graduating that night said that she was imagining as other people were giving their speeches what she would say. And she said she wanted to quote the bridge. Other people can build bridges. We try, all of us try to build bridges. Your work is about building bridges. This conversation has been about building a bridge. My work is about building bridges. It's about between and among cultures, between and among faiths, in between and among family members, between and among people in pain. But this bridge will only take you halfway there. The last few steps you have to take alone. And as much as I try to bring people together, and as much as I have succeeded from time to time in bringing people together, I also know that ultimately each of us has to take that walk, has to cross that bridge, has to start that story, has to do the thing 
that allows them to get around the wolf and through the woods and to the light and over the pain and out of the doldrums to say what I think are the most powerful words in the English language. Mm. Once upon a time. Bruce Filer, thank you for living out the uh, the end of that story, Once Upon a Time. There lived a little boy named Bruce and the things you've done in your life and the lives you've impacted through that story and the bridges you have built and those you've guided across them. One, one of my favorite poems is called The Bridge Builder and it's about an old man who crosses a bridge and then goes back and builds another one. And the whole poem is about a young lad on the other side saying, why are you building this? You'll never cross this way. And he says, lad, it's not for me. I was able to cross this river with no problem. It's for those who are coming behind me. So you are a, you're a mighty bridge builder and you've done it well. As are you. Happy to be uh, on this walk together, my friend. My new friend, my, friend, my new old is, friend, my new old friend. My new old friend, I appreciate your time. That is Bruce Filer, the author of Remarkable Books. You got to check them all out. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day, friends. Build that bridge be bold enough to cross over it and live inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side that you were going to love the conversation with Bruce. There were so many details, so many notes that I took during our conversation. But one of my favorite things, I have it starred right here in front of me. It was the answer you heard a moment ago to the question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Do you remember what he said? Here it is. Everybody dies, but not everybody lives. Isn't that powerful? Everybody dies, true, but not everybody lives. My friends, I want to continue this conversation with you at our Live Inspired Together community. It is our free members-only virtual community. It is designed to help you, yes, indeed, you embrace the power of perspective, the gifts you already possess, and the truth that your best days are in front of you. You want to learn more about Bruce? You want to learn more about Living Inspired? You want to learn more about not just recognizing that everybody dies, but it's time for us to truly start living? Well, join me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash together. That's where you and I are going to begin doing life together after these episodes. I'm excited to see you there. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, I'm going to share with you another episode that I think you will love. It is with my brother, my dear friend, my buddy. His name is Dr. John Deloney, armed with not one, but he's a show-off with two PhDs and more than two decades of experience in counseling and in crisis response. John's goal is to help us navigate tough decisions, improve relationships, and remind others that they are worthy of being well. You will love John Deloney. On this podcast, I bring in a whole lot of friends. Deloney's truly a friend. When I text him, 30 seconds later, he's back with me. This is a good man. He's going to unpack with us how we can learn by honestly embracing our past and the practical steps in order to take the proactive role in finding the freedom and new beginnings. Deloney works with individuals who are struggling in relationships, with abuse, with uncertainty about a challenge they're facing at home, with mental wellness, and a health crisis. He's all over the place, but his focus is on the heart of the individual in front of him. He's a phenomenal guy. You can listen to Dr. John Deloney on the Live Inspired Podcast, episode 456. 
Or you can let your fingers do the walking and join me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, brothers and sisters, family and friends, live inspired together community. You know I love you. There's, you know there's nothing you can do about that. You know I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.